I think it's really important stuff, and, and we're going to kind of bring it all to a close today. And this has been a series that's about the end of history. It's about the apocalypse, if you want to use that word, the, the kind of fancy Christian theology word that we use is eschatology. It just means the study of last things. And this has been a series about Christian eschatology. How does the period of history that we are in now come to its conclusion? And the biggest purpose behind this series hasn't just been to kind of like talk about crazy stuff for its own sake, but to help us move from having a fearful view of the end times to having a hopeful view of the end times. Because for whatever reason, as modern people, and we've explored this throughout the series, as modern people, when we think about the end times, we typically think about them with fear and dread and worry. That's why the books we write about them and the movies we make about them are all like thrillers and and scary movies. I told First Service, if you want to find quite possibly the worst of these, somebody actually sent me the title after First Service and I forgot it again already. But there's a direct-to-DVD end times movie starring none other than Mr. T., and he's not like playing a character. He's just Mr. T in the movie. He has a mohawk and gold chains and everything. So it's called, it's something part four judgment. But I don't know what the main title is. So you can find that on Amazon. It's probably not worth $4.99, but you can definitely give that a shot. But it's the kind of movie we make. We think about the end times. And those of us who grew up in the 90s watching movies about it, we think of things like guillotines and like evil empires rising up. And it scares us, fills us with fear and dread. But what we know is that the early church, and before them, the Jewish people, when they thought about the end of all things, and when they read and wrote apocalyptic literature, it didn't give them fear, it didn't give them dread, it filled them with hope, a hopeful expectation, the kind of hope that made it possible for them to endure the suffering and hardship that they endured. And if you think about your life now, you know that that's kind of how hope works. The thing that you have hope for in the future helps you live differently today. And we see this like on a small scale all the time. So how many of you guys have like had a horrible day at work or at home or at school or whatever, and the only thing that keeps you going is remembering like something good that's coming either later that week or later that day? You guys know what I'm talking about? You're at work and you go like, tonight is the night that my show is on. And I can get through this because I'm going to go home and watch my show or I'm going to watch the, you know, whatever sports team I follow. They're playing tonight. I'm not going to talk about the Sharks because that hurt First for Service's feelings too much. So I won't do that to you guys. But you have something you're expecting. You're, you're at work and it's miserable and you just can't, the day is crawling by and then you remember, I've got a steak marinating in the fridge. And when this is over, when these trials cease, I'm going to go home crack open my favorite beverage, and I'm going to cook that steak by myself in the backyard, and it's going to be amazing. Sometimes it's something as simple as like knowing that you Amazon Prime something two days ago and remembering when I get home, that blue tape package is going to be on the porch. Just something, a hopeful expectation gives you endurance in the present moment. All the moms in the room know that you don't need like a TV show or sports teams. The thing that you set your hopes on that gets you through the hard times is just a little thing called bedtime. You know what I'm talking about? You're, the, you're, you're in the midst of like the worst day, your kids are, are completely out of control and you just go, hey, you know what? 5.15, it's not that early. I mean like, it's not like I'm putting them to bed at five, it's 5.15. You have, you have a hope for something good that's coming and it makes it so that you can endure the present moment. Sometimes it's farther away than that. It's, you've got a vacation coming up or a loved one that you haven't seen in a long time is coming to visit. But our hope in those kind of near-term things can make the small things and difficulties that we deal with in life more tolerable. And it's meant to be the same way with the big things. Our ultimate Christian hope for the future is meant to give us strength and endurance now. One of the ways that we talked about this kind of in the church for a number of years, um, at least for me growing up, I don't know how many of you guys have heard this, but we talked a lot about um, getting jewels in your crown. You guys familiar with that? That like you do something good to get a new, another jewel in your crown in heaven. The other one that kind of goes along with it a lot of the time is um, the, the idea that everybody in heaven is going to get a sweet mansion and the better you live your life, like the bigger and cooler your mansion will be. You guys know what I'm talking about? You've, some of you have incentivized your children by saying like, you want that jewel in your crown or not? Me and Stan Vitus, our youth pastor here, we actually, we figured it out. We think we figured it out. We're pretty convinced that the mansion size always changes proportionate to your crown size, and it's all about doorway width so that your crown can fit into your mansion. So it's not just about like how cool is your mansion. It's are the doorways big enough to accommodate your giant jewel-encrusted crown? (laughs) 
That's just crazy. The truth is, and this has been the whole point of the series, the Christian hope is so much bigger than this. And a lot of the time, the language that is used in these parts of the Bible is harder for us to connect to, and so we read it, and it freaks us out, and it's weird, and so we either don't think about it, or when we do think about it, it scares us. But understanding how this literature works, which is what our first week was about, understanding kind of how the times that we live in affect the way we read these parts of the Bible, that's what our second week was about, allow us to approach these books and try to find in them the hopeful, joyful expectation that we're supposed to have. And so last week and the week before, we talked about heaven or new creation and hell and kind of some of the ways that we maybe have misunderstood or misinterpreted those parts of scripture. So I want to encourage you guys, first of all, whatever weeks you missed in this series, go back and listen to those on the website, on our podcast, because this is stuff that I believe is is transformative for our lives today. And so the goal of today is is to close by talking about how does this expectation that we have for the future change the way we live today. But before we get to that, there's one last character in the biblical narrative that has to be dealt with. And it's one we haven't really talked about a whole lot yet. We talked about him a little bit three weeks ago, but today we're going to look at how the ending of the story goes for the enemy. Now, the Bible is crystal clear that throughout the story, there is a spiritual cosmic enemy of God and his people who stands opposed to the will of God, to the purposes of God. And for those of us who are living in the time and place that we're living now, he's not a character that we like to talk about a whole lot. Most of the time, we're kind of uncomfortable with the idea of like a personified spiritual evil. We're fine with it in movies and TV shows and stuff, but when we start thinking about it as, as some, something or someone that might actually exist, that kind of starts to freak us out. We don't quite know how to approach it. We would much rather talk about, and this is what we typically do talk about, the kind of impacts or effects of evil. So we can talk about evil things or evil symptoms, things like human trafficking, modern-day slavery, right? War, violence, abuse, you name it. All of the horrible things that happen in the world around us. We talk about those things. We want solutions to those things. And, of course, we should. But we're really uncomfortable talking about what lies behind the scenes. And that's exactly what apocalyptic literature is meant to do. The Greek word apocalypsis means unveiling. It's about pulling back the curtain to show us what's behind the scenes. And when we talk about evil in the world, there's this giant blind spot that many of us have, which is the evil personality, the evil being that Scripture is so clear exists that we just don't spend nearly enough time talking about. In fact, depending on how you're wired, you probably either um, think about and give too much credit to the enemy, or you don't think about and don't give any credit to the enemy in your life. So how that works is like if you do something bad, we'll we'll pick like a really benign example. So you steal a cookie and you know you shouldn't. Some people are prone to say like, oh man, the devil's just really working on me today. Some people on the other end are going like, "You, you don't think the devil is too busy to like, like he's got other stuff to do, so maybe he's not the one who's telling you to steal a cookie. Maybe it's just the evil in your own heart, the lack of self-control that you have. Like you stole the cookie. And somewhere in between is the view of Scripture, that behind every human act of evil that is absolutely contributed to and motivated by like the brokenness that is within us, there is interwoven with it acts of conscious malevolence by the enemies of God. We meet kind of the grand primary enemy at the very beginning of Scripture on page three. This is the first thing he says. He asks Adam and Eve, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The character speaking is this serpent who's there in the garden. And as the story continues, we discover this is a creature, a spiritual creature, who is already in rebellion against God. So God has created a good world And in that world, it's designed that human beings and all creation will live under God's good reign. But this creature does not want to live under the reign and rule of God. He wants to assert his own reign and rule over himself. And he tempts humanity into that exact same desire, to reject the rule and reign of God and rule themselves, to be like God themselves. And humanity follows the serpent down that path into rebellion and disobedience. And as a result, the story the Bible tells is the unraveling of all of the goodness of creation. 
to the point where death, disease, violence, human evil against one another, all of it invades the good creation. And the rest of the story, as we talk about here at South Valley over and over again, is about God working in and through humanity to undo that brokenness. But at the very beginning, there is this rebellious serpent. And as the story goes on, we see him pop up here and there, sometimes in incredibly subtle ways, where if you're not paying close attention, you could miss that there is an actual active enemy involved. And sometimes it's obvious. The author will tell you who it was that incited David to do something evil or was at work in the life of the character who does the evil thing. But at the point where Jesus breaks onto the scene, we already have this understanding of a a being who has been, again, interwoven with human evil. And so it's not like, this this is one of the ways that we have to train ourselves to think differently. It's not like a clean break between like, well, sometimes it's spiritual evil, sometimes the devil made me do it, and sometimes it's just me and the devil had nothing to do with it and, and kind of his forces and his influence on the world had nothing to do with it. In the worldview of the biblical authors, those things are interconnected in incredibly complex ways. And so every act of human evil is interwoven with the spiritual evil that's in opposition to God. Interestingly, we never learn the name of this being. We think we know his name, but what we have are actually titles. So the one you're most familiar with probably is the Satan. In the Bible, it will, it's always the Satan. It's not Satan because it's not a proper name. It's a title. It means the accuser or the adversary or the opponent. It's, it's someone who is in opposition to something, not for something. He's also called the devil, which means the slanderer. Sometimes he's called the enemy. Sometimes he's called the evil one. Sometimes he's called the tempter. And all of these titles give us some clues to who he is and what his goals are and what he's trying to do. And so again, when Jesus shows up, it's very clear that his view of the world is one in which he is not just there to correct human evil. He's not just there to kind of do battle with ideas that human beings have. He is there to do battle with spiritual evil at the same time. And again, not in a way that's separate, but in a way that's incredibly integrated together. So you see Jesus casting out demons. In the most dramatic example, we have Jesus sent by the Holy Spirit out into the desert to face the Satan face-to-face directly. It's a story that three out of four Gospels tell, and it's called The Temptation. So Jesus faces the tempter one-on-one and is thrown the three kind of great temptations that subcategories of which every other human being for all of human history has fallen for. And Jesus, one by one, resists. He quotes scripture to the Satan. He says, no, I'm not going to do what the rest of humanity has done. And so the Satan leaves him and says he departs and waits for an opportune time. And when Jesus is talking about what he's doing and what he's going to do, sometimes it's mysterious and, and, and there's kind of debate about what exactly he means, but he's always pointing towards what he's going to do in terms of this kind of spiritual evil under which humanity has always lived. One of those examples is he's talking to some Pharisees who are questioning him, and they're saying, hey, the reason you can cast out demons and do all this stuff is because you have demonic power that you're using to do it. And he says, no, I mean, first of all, that doesn't make sense because a house divided against itself can't stand. And then what he says, using this really powerful symbolic imagery, is he says, if you want to break into a strong man's house and steal his things, what do you have to do first? Anybody remember? You have to tie up the strong man. So Jesus is giving a hint, I believe, that what he's going to do at his death and resurrection is tie up the strong man so that he can plunder his goods you and me. And that tells us a lot. It tells us, first of all, whose goods we were at that point. Who did we belong to? Paul says, when you're saved, you come out of the kingdom of darkness and into light. You were subjected to the elemental authorities of the world, Paul will say, but you've been called out of that. And so again, you you can kind of see the picture that's being painted of a world where there are spiritual forces at work with this one personality at the top of it, and Jesus is there to do battle with those forces. And so at the cross, Jesus, of course, we're very used to thinking of it in terms of Jesus taking upon himself the punishment of humanity and providing a way for forgiveness of sins. That is absolutely central to the atonement, to what Jesus did at the cross. But the New Testament authors also talk over and over again about how at the cross, Jesus defeats evil. Jesus confronts, does battle with, and defeats 
Satan, sin, and death itself. And so Paul will say things like, he he triumphs over them at the cross, and there now all the authorities and rulers of the world are subjected to him, that he has declared victory. He's already dealt like the decisive victory blow against them. And again, I know some of you guys, depending, like some of you guys, depending on your theological upbringing, you're like, I love all this. I'm cool with all of this. Some of you guys are like, man, this is so bizarre. Like I'm just not used to thinking about the world this way. Read the New Testament authors talking about the crucifixion with eyes to see what they have to say about spiritual evil. And you'll see over and over again, one of the most dominant themes of the atonement, of the death of Jesus on the cross, is the defeat of evil. And so this is what Jesus does. He accomplishes this kind of decisive victory blow against the Satan and against evil itself. But where it gets interesting is that the New Testament authors are really clear that it's not like those, those evil forces have been completely done away with yet at this point. I mean, we've been living 2,000 years since Jesus died and rose again, and we see the effects of evil still around us today, right? It's like the easiest question you're going to get this morning. <laughs> Turn on the news. You can see the effects of evil are still there. And the New Testament authors talk about this. They talk about how Satan, even though he's been dealt this, again, decisive defeat by Jesus, he's still out there like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's still throwing fiery darts at believers. His influence is still there, and we're still dealing with it to this day. So when we talk about the end of all things, one of the things we have to ask is what happens with this? How can God bring in that new good creation where there is no tears, where there is no suffering? How can that happen if there's still this roaring, prowling lion. And the good news is, the book of Revelation tells us exactly how his story ends. When we meet the Satan in the book of Revelation, he is symbolized as this massive dragon. And it's, it's part of what, what John calls a great envision, a great symbol that he sees, a great sign is actually what it says. And he sees this great dragon who's described in vivid detail, and what he's doing is making war against the Messiah and his people. So he's trying to devour the Messiah, but he fails. He's trying to devour the Messiah's people, and, and he's kind of constantly doing battle with them. And then there's a point, again, follow me here, this is, this is the symbolic world of Revelation. He is bound in a bottomless pit for a thousand years by a chain. Now, three weeks ago, we talked about kind of the variety of interpretations of that particular moment in the book of Revelation. So if you weren't here, I encourage you to, to go and listen to that and hear kind of the different opinions about when that might happen and what it means. But in either case, after that kind of thousand years where he's bound with the chain passes, he is let out again. And this is how John describes it. He says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog are these ancient enemies of Israel from the Old Testament who become representative of the nations in their opposition to God's people. So he comes out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So the Satan, the dragon, when the dragon's introduced, he's described as that ancient serpent who is the devil and the Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And so here we see this dragon go to all the corners of the earth and gather an army made up of all nations. And if you've been paying attention up to this point, if you're reading along in Revelation, you're like, you've been in like this overwhelming imagery for a long time already. But one thing that stands out, it's a powerful moment in Revelation 5, is Jesus, the lamb who was slain, gathering for himself a people from all nations who he ransomed through his death. And so in this moment, you see what's almost like a a satanic parody of that that Satan goes and gathers his people from all nations and surrounds Jerusalem and is ready for war to start. And if you're used to stories the way we tell them and the way kind of people throughout all of history have told them, you go, this is where the climactic battle's gonna happen, right? There've been a bunch of battles already in the Revelation, but this is the big one. The dragon's got his army from all nations. He's surrounded the holy city. All the people are there, and this is just gonna be like, an absolute bloodbath. They're going to go back and forth. It's going to be really close, but I think Jesus is going to win. Pretty sure that's how it ends, but it's going to get, it's going to be really close and it's going to be a horrible, terrifying battle. But then this happens. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the slanderer who had deceived them 
was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There is no battle at the end. Have you ever noticed that? Anyone who's read this book? The dragon gathers his army from all nations and surrounds the city, and when Jesus decides to deal with it, it is done. No fight, no battle, fire from heaven, complete, total, permanent victory. Boom, just like that. That's the way that the vision that John sees describes what's going to happen. No struggle, no battle, no neck and neck like arm wrestle between Jesus and Satan. It's just fire from heaven and complete victory all at once. Permanent defeat, destruction, expulsion of all evil. And if you've grown up like I have in the kind of post-enlightenment Western world where you don't think enough about the spiritual realities that are behind the scenes, you don't know how much you should be longing for this moment. How does God wipe away every tear? How does God right every wrong? How does God correct all of the evil and injustice and horrors that are in the world around us? He has to defeat the serpent permanently. He has to finish what he started 2,000 years ago. And so when we long for the future, one of the things we should be longing for is the final, definitive end of evil. See, Jesus at the cross dealt the definitive blow to Satan. But the story of Scripture tells is that when he comes back, he's going to finish the job permanently. And the impact of that victory on the rest of creation is absolutely beautiful. This is what unfolds into that good new creation that we talked about here two weeks ago. But you don't get that until you defeat evil and get rid of it forever. And so I want to encourage you guys, when you look at the world around you and you think about kind of the the evil things that we see happen, the horrible things that we suffer and our loved ones suffer and people on the other side of the world suffer, remember, God has promised to do something about it. And not just in some kind of like abstract, uh, yeah, like it's going to get better. No, he is going to come back and finish it permanently. And when it's time to do that, there's not going to be a fight happening. It's over. And that's good news, even though it's not the kind of good news we're used to thinking about. And so the kind of outflowing impact of this is, is beautiful. First, it talks about how death itself and Hades which is a word that normally means hell or the place of the dead. Death itself and Hades are thrown into that lake of fire. And then new creation comes in. This kind of rebuilt earth and heaven that are finally brought together the way they were always meant to be. Again, we talked about this two weeks ago. So we're not going to go into detail on this. I just want you to read this and, and feel what the image is trying to convey to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is what God is going to bring in after the final defeat of evil, after the resurrection of all people and the righteous judgment of God. And it is a picture of heaven and earth, these things that were meant to be together but have been torn apart by human evil and rebellion and spiritual evil and rebellion will be brought back together the way they're supposed to be. There's one particular image in this section that's kind of describing this new city that's itself representative of all of new creation. And it's just one of those things where when you read it and you're not used to apocalyptic literature, you're like, well, that's weird. But if you actually dig into it, it's incredible. And and to me, it, it makes this idea of God being with man as powerful and big in scale as I could ever imagine. It says this. This is the kind of thing where, like I said, you read this and you're just like, that's weird. Next page. It says, the one who spoke with me, this is John in his vision. He's, he's kind of getting a tour of New Jerusalem, and he has an angel who's his kind of tour guide. The Bible doesn't call him a tour guide, but we can call him that. The one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, 
Again, man, you read that and you're like, okay, I don't know what stadia are. I don't know why it's important that we have the measurements of New Jerusalem. But if you put on the kind of lens of reading apocalyptic literature and seeing what these symbols would have meant to the first Christians who were steeped in the Old Testament, this is an absolutely incredible image. So a couple things might stand out right away. Anything in particular stand out about those numbers to you, math people? They're multiples of 12. We've got at least one math person in the room. 12,000 stadia. We don't use stadia to measure anymore, but this is just under 1,400 miles. So this is a very big measurement, but the main point is it's a multiple of 12. It's like a super 12. And then the same thing with the wall. It's 144 cubits. It's 12 times 12 cubits. And the number 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel. It's also the number of the first disciples of Jesus. It becomes symbolic of, of the people of God and their kind of perfected state. So we already see some significance there, but there's something else about this, that's, and that's the shape of the city. If the length, width, and height, they're all the same, what shape is that, math people? It's a cube. It is a square, but it's also a cube, I think. Drew, is that right? I don't know math, you guys. I'm not one of the math people I'm looking for here. It's a giant cube. So you go, okay, that's bizarre. Why do we need to know it's a giant cube? But if you were an early Christian, especially one who came from a Jewish background who was familiar with the Old Testament, this image of a prophet being given a tour where where things are being measured by an angelic messenger would bring immediately to your mind a really famous prophet from 500 years before this was written a guy named Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet during the exile of Israel. So when Ezekiel is doing what he's doing, the actual temple that Solomon built is lying in ruins in Jerusalem. It's been destroyed by Babylon. And Ezekiel himself is in Babylon with the exiles. But at the end of his book, he is brought in a vision to a new Jerusalem with a new temple. And this is what happens. When he brought me there, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. And the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I will show you. For you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. So you guys see the familiarity, right? 500 years later, John has a really similar experience. Angel with a measuring stick. For John, it's New Jerusalem. For Ezekiel, it's a brand new temple. And they start measuring things. And if you read this section of Ezekiel, they measure things. It goes on and on. I'm talking like the door and the door jam and the room and the entryway to the room. Measurement after measurement. And to us, it seems like, man, why am I getting all this information? But if your temple lies in ruins, you are just drinking in these descriptions of the new temple. And so if you think, John's being given measurements of the city, that reminds me of Ezekiel measuring the temple. What in the old temple was a perfect cube? Any like Exodus Bible fans? Can you tell me what part of the temple was a cube? The Holy of Holies. I know we're like 10 levels of inception deep now, but I I promise it's worth it. The Holy of Holies was a place in the tabernacle and then in the temple that was, it's called the Holy of Holies because in Hebrew, that's how you make something as holy as possible. You say it's holy, holy. So it's the most holy place. And it's a perfect cube at the center of the tabernacle and the center of the temple. And it's the place where God's special immediate presence dwells. See, the sin and rebellion of man separated heaven and earth. But in the temple, and in particular in the Holy of Holies, you have this place where heaven and earth are together. And in order for God to dwell among people who are evil and make mistakes, he has to be separate. His immediate presence has to be separated from them in this way. And so it's this gracious gift that he gives to the people of Israel that he, he dwells among them in the temple in the Holy of Holies. And this place is so holy. The holiness of God is so present there that it's terrifying. You can't go in there. One person goes in there once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. After doing special ceremonial washings, putting on special clothing that includes bells so that the people listening can tell if he's still alive in there or not. And he goes in with fear and trembling once a year on the day when God looks at the collective sins of Israel and forgives them. So, think through this. 1500 BC, approximately, Moses builds the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies, this place where heaven and earth meet where the unmitigated, immediate presence of God dwells in terrifying holiness. 500 years later, Solomon builds 
the temple, this beautiful version of the tabernacle set in Jerusalem with its own Holy of Holies. 500 years after that, that temple is destroyed and Ezekiel gets an image of a new temple, perfect with its own Holy of Holies. 500 years after that, John sees a vision, not of a temple, but of a city, new creation. And the entire city is the Holy of Holies. Try to see that with Jewish eyes and imagine a future in which the unmitigated, holy, immediate presence of God is filling every square inch of new creation. The place where the high priest trembled to approach once a year, all of new creation is filled with that much of God's presence and there is no need for fear because the the work of Jesus has accomplished so much that you can be in the very presence of God forever, for all eternity. It's an incredible picture of what God is gonna do, of what the, the sacrifice of Jesus has already made the way for. People like you and me will dwell in the presence of God forever because of the cleansing work of Jesus. So when we look to the future, the hope that we have is for a day when all of humanity will be resurrected. There will be righteous judgment. God will do what is right for all people. Finally, the the evil forces that have been at work behind the scenes will be completely and permanently destroyed and God will usher in new creation where those who have been faithful to Jesus, who have entrusted themselves to Jesus, will dwell in the immediate presence of God forever. That's the hope. And man, it is better than crowns. It's better than mansions. And so the question we want to ask as we kind of bring this series to a conclusion is what do we do in light of that? How should that change the way you live your life now? And the answer that the book of Revelation gives is to say over and over again that you should be faithful. The call to the readers of Revelation is be faithful, be faithful to the end. The resurrected Jesus at the beginning of the book says, be faithful to me unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The people who follow the Messiah in the Revelation are called faithful and true. This is a call to faithfully serve Jesus. And when we think of like being faithful to the end, or being faithful unto death, the thing that typically comes to our mind are are like these really extreme hypothetical situations. So if you've seen A Thief in the Night, you know, the horror movie about the end times from the 90s, you picture like a guillotine and going, if I'm in the guillotine, will I be faithful to Jesus? If it's a life or death and I, I have to deny Jesus to save my life, would I be faithful to Jesus then? What if I'm gonna get tortured? What if they're getting ready to torture me just in the most horrific ways imaginable? Would I be faithful to Jesus then? What I'd like to suggest to you is that for the vast majority of us, while that question might be interesting and worth consideration, a much more important question is, will you be faithful with small things now? So you can ask, will I be faithful with ultimate things when it's life or death? What the authors of the New Testament want to ask is, will you be faithful now? So when Peter, this, this author whose book we just did a series on before this one, when he talks about the end of all things, he doesn't say, face the guillotine with courage. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Not, you know, therefore, put on a sandwich board proclaiming the end of the world and go tell people or like build a bomb shelter and fill it with freeze-dried food. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Get your life in order. The end of all things is at hand. Work on self-control. Work on the habits and behaviors in your life that are out of balance. Pray. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. This word earnestly carries the, uh, the nuance of like an ongoing, lifelong commitment of love to your fellow Christian. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Bring people into your home. Have conversations with people. Care about each other. As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Such a beautiful picture that God dispenses his grace in different ways to different people. So we have different talents, different gifts, different things we've been given. Whatever it is, use it to serve one another. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter seems less concerned with whether you will be faithful to the end with life and death situations and more concerned with whether you'll be faithful with the next five minutes. 
when it's not a life and death situation. And then maybe the next five minutes after that. And then the next five minutes after that. So we can sit there and ask, will I be faithful to my dying day? And Peter wants to go, be faithful tomorrow. And here's the thing. Making the small right decision, doing the right thing, the next little right thing that you can do, time and time again, that's what creates the type of character in you that will do the big right thing if you ever do end up in that situation. But if you want to know if you'll be faithful at the guillotine, ask yourself if you're faithful now without one. And so Peter's concern is, and and this is all over the New Testament, it's be faithful with what God has given you right now. So when we think about the fact that Jesus is going to return, that we're going to live with Jesus in new creation forever, that there will be a day without pain and tears and evil, it should cause us to do the next small right thing time and time again. God uses extravagant, massive acts of generosity and and people doing incredible things. That's happening all, all around the world. But honestly, he also uses billions and billions of small good things that regular people like me and you do day in and day out to bring history along the course that he wants it to go. So a few categories I think we can consider. The first one is relationships, whether these are our friends or your family, your husband, wife, your children, whatever kind of the dominant primary relationships in your life are, are you investing in those relationships as if everything we read about the end of all things is actually going to happen? Do you talk to your kids the way you would if you really believed that that's where history is headed? Do you treat your husband, wife the way you would if you really believe that that's where history is headed. And again, I'm not talking about like the big ultimate things because when we talk about like marriage, it's the same thing. You're like, oh, I would take a bullet for my wife. I would jump in front of a train for my wife. I'm pretty sure Bruno Mars said that actually. <laughs> and again, whether or not you would jump in front of a train for your spouse matters a lot less today than whether you'll do something small and good for your wife. Sacrifice, your, sacrifice yourself in a real tangible small way. So maybe it's you volunteer to change the next diaper. You know what I mean? You, you, you guys don't all have kids the same age as my kid, but that's the greatest sacrifice I can make today. It's going like, I can tell from across the room that's the bad kind of diaper. And I'll jump in front of that train right now. It's the next small thing. Some of this involves being really intentional with how you talk to people. So all of the recent data suggests that you cannot have a serious, deep conversation with someone in less than seven minutes. Do you know that? It takes seven minutes to get past small talk. And if you think through your life, you'll realize that's true. Like, if you're driving with someone on a long drive, ask yourself which exit you started talking seriously. It's about seven minutes in usually. And so we need to invest in our relationships with our friends, with our family, with our children, in in really practical ways like this. You fill your life with spaces where you will talk to them for more than seven minutes. You don't have to, to like, like get a curriculum about how to talk to them better. That would be great and that would be helpful too. If you talk to them for more than seven minutes, this stuff will happen. So create that space in your life. Have dinner together. Dads, this is a particular challenge for us. You might need to think about how you can reorganize your life so that you're home with your kids before bed, so that you can read the Bible with them, so you can sit at the dinner table with them and have those conversations that need to be had. Invest in your family and your relationships as if the end of all things was actually at hand. Because the Bible says it is. And God is patient, and so it doesn't feel like it's at hand. It feels like it's been a long time. But it's coming, and we need to live our lives as if it is. Another one that I think is really important, even though it's, it's hard to talk about, is this, the patterns of sin in our lives. When Jesus talks about like, our eternal destiny, he talks a lot about behavior. He talks a lot about sin. He says things like, When you think about hell, what you should do is consider whether or not you should chop your hand off if it causes you to sin. Because it's better to go into glory without your hand than to, along with your hand, be thrown into hell. That's hard. So one more time, you go to the most extreme example and go, well, I'm not supposed to actually chop my hand off, right? Whatever Jesus means there, whether you should actually chop your hand off or not, there are a lot of people in the room who have apps on their phone they need to delete. You know it. You know, there are patterns of sin in your life that you could get rid of, not completely, not the underlying stuff, but man, you could chop off that app today, and you should. There are patterns in your life that you know might take some level of surgery like that. Sometimes it's a really hard conversation. Sometimes it's bringing someone else into it, whether it's a pastor, a small group leader, someone that you trust who's a mature Christian, but you need to do the hard work of beginning the process of eliminating those patterns of sin in your life. 
And again, this has to do with treating our sin as if we actually believe that the return of Jesus could happen at any minute. As if we actually believe that this future is coming. So for many of you, there are patterns of sin in your life that you have told yourself for years you can handle and you will get rid of and you'll stop and it's not gonna happen unless you really step into doing something about it. One of the things we offer at this church that, that many of you would probably benefit from hugely is our Celebrate Recovery Group. Meets in this room every Monday night. It's a 12-step program, but it's not just for substance abuse. It's for what they say is all of life's hurts, habits, and hang-ups. So whatever it is in your life that you need to get a handle on, consider coming to a group like that. Reach out to a pastor. Talk to someone. But don't delay. Don't kick that can down the road forever because the Christian posture towards the future is supposed to be, it's, it's coming any minute. And Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. So be self-controlled and sober-minded. Another one is generosity. One of the other things that you see Jesus say over and over again when he talks about the kingdom of heaven is how we handle our finances and our time and the things that we value and treasure. He says things like, no, you you sell the things you have here so that you can have treasure in heaven. There's a terrifying parable about a man who builds these barns and he fills them up with stuff and he's got so much stuff that he goes, well, I'm gonna tear these barns down and build even bigger barns so I can fill them up with even more stuff and look how much stuff I'll have then. And the end of the parable is full This very night, your life is required of you. So who gets all the stuff? You see in that kind of stark parable the ridiculousness of stockpiling earthly wealth if you actually believe that the future the Bible describes is coming. It's ridiculous, and I'm just as tempted to it as anyone else. Man, if we actually believed this, how would we handle our finances? And so again, I am not suggesting, unless the Holy Spirit is convicting you to this, which it it could very well happen, I'm not suggesting that you go home and sell everything you own. What I'm suggesting, some of you guys are like, oh good. (laughs) If you're too relieved, maybe you should consider it. Um, What I'm suggesting again is do the next right small thing. So for you that might be, no, it's time for me to start giving faithfully and consistently. And, And I'm telling you, this is maybe the best example I can think of, of of an area where God takes tons and tons of small acts of obedience and does incredible, huge things with them. One, a couple examples just have happened in our church in the last couple months. How many of you guys remember a couple months ago when Janine and I got up here and told you about a need that we have at our orphanage in Haiti to get new beds for the whole orphanage? You guys remember that? We talked about how the government's going to shut it down if we can't provide metal beds, and it was a short time frame. The, the response to that was so incredibly generous that we not only got the beds, which I have pictures of here. Here's the beds that the generosity of this church paid for. Yeah. Here's a picture of, of some of the beds in the boys' dormitory. There's many more than that. I just like that picture because that's my friend Swap Swap sitting in the doorway. His, name is Swap, his nickname is Swap Swap, which in uh, Creole means fast, fast. And I was like, is he super fast or something? And Because uh, why does he have the nickname Swap Swap? And Josue, the orphanage director, was like, I have no idea he gave himself that nickname. <laughs> I was like, like, you're not allowed to, you can't do that. So that, that Swap Swap, he's a, he's a great young man. But we weren't only able to, to purchase beds, we were also able to renovate their entire kitchen. So I have a, just, this is just a picture of the stove. I don't have pictures of all the work because it's still ongoing. But we were able to fund, I'm telling you, when I was there, Janine saw it also, they're, they're uh, the, the pipes in the kitchen are getting really old and there's a bunch of problems and the generosity of your guys' response to this need was able to completely redo their kitchen. We extended the roof on one of the orphanage buildings because last rainy season, there were tons of problems in that part of the orphanage and there are still funds left over that we're gonna continue to use for ongoing projects. So, it's, yeah, it, it's awesome. Praise God. And there were some people in this church who gave extravagantly, praise God, but a huge part of it was a lot of people giving what they could give. And that's how the work of the ministry gets done. That's like one targeted example, but here's how it works, which is kind of the ongoing faithfulness of our church. Stuff like this happens all the time. We just don't always do the best job of telling you guys about it. But last week, um, or a couple weeks ago, Hope of the Nations, our partners in Tanzania, they, ha- they have a, just a, a massive problem going on right now. There's a lot of upheaval happening in the government. Um, without, and we don't have time to kind of explain all of the details, but long story short, they got hit with an unexpected $25,000 tax bill because of problems with their local government. And so if you're a small nonprofit in East Africa, you don't have $25,000 laying around. But because of just the kind of ongoing, consistent generosity of people in this church, we were able to, on the spot last week, send them half of that. And they got the other half from other churches that they're partnered with. So like, and I, I amen. And, and I just want you to, to know truly, that this is not at all about like, 
Look how, how much South Valley's doing. South Valley does as much as South Valley does. It's not the organization, it's not the staff. It's the small, ongoing acts of faithfulness of all of the people who are part of this church. And so I just wanna suggest to you, and it's not just about giving to the church, generosity goes far beyond that. It's about how you treat your friends and your family, about how you support other nonprofits and people in your community that you believe in. But know that you don't have to do everything, and you shouldn't do nothing just because you can't do everything, right? So in all of these areas, whether it's relationships, whether it's patterns of sin that, you, that you've been hiding from in your life, whether it's your generosity, consider what is the next small right thing that I can do to step forward in this. The last one is service. And um, the cool thing is we did a series here called, uh, that was about SVCC teams a few months ago and we created these cards. They're in all of your handouts today. They are filled with dozens of practical ways that you can step into serving both in the church and outside of the church through our partner organizations. So if you see this, you can even take it out right now if you want to. This is a concrete way for you to commit to doing something differently as a result of the hope that you have for the future. So there's things in here that range from being a greeter on a Sunday morning. You guys, there's no small job in the church. Do you know how important it is? The first person who meets you the first time you come to church and shakes your hand and says, I'm glad you're here, let me help you find your seat. Do you know how much that matters? I talked to somebody after first service who still remembers the person who did that for them. She's been here for decades, and the first person who shook her hand was Mario Flores, one of our elders. She came up and told me about how big of an impact it had. And so, jobs like being a greeter, jobs like volunteering in our children's ministry. Those of you guys with kids know how incredible of a job Janine and her team do every single Sunday back there. But it's again, yeah, all right, cool, yeah. Clap for them. They, can't, they probably can't hear you. They're, right now they're in there going like, thanks for the compliment, but wrap it up because we're, we're over time right now. <laughs> what could be a better use of your time on earth before Jesus comes back than telling Bible stories to children? Telling them about Jesus. Letting them see the way that you treat them and other people. This is the kind of stuff that has absolutely eternal implications. So you don't have to like quit your job and go to seminary and become a pastor. Jesus is coming, so, so volunteer in Kidstown. Consider doing one of the things outside the church, like serving the homeless with us. We do it once a month. Or, be, or join our Foster the Bay team. We, we brought up um, Danny and Lisa Hahn and talked about the incredible impact that Danny has had in the prayer ministry. A lot of people don't know that Lisa Hahn was the first advocate we had with Foster the Bay, this nonprofit partnership here that is absolutely incredibly important to us. Every Sunday, we've got, we've got kids in homes because of this program. And, and I remember when I first heard about Foster the Bay, the first thing I thought was like, I really hope Lisa says yes when I ask her because she's the one I'm asking about this. Now we have a young lady named Cassidy Daly who grew up in this church who's serving in that same role. There are things that you can do that take tiny bits of effort all the way up to giving your entire life for it. And what I want to suggest to you today is just don't let this series or this day end without making a concrete decision to do something differently in light of the future. Don't just go like, wow, I really picture the end of all things differently now. That's a great thing to have here in my head. If it doesn't change our behavior, it's a waste of time, guys. And so I want to suggest just take this card. Um, and man, if you're already serving in, in one or more of these areas, as I know many of you guys are, then just take heart and know that it matters. God is using the cumulative effect of billions of small acts of faithfulness to create the future that he's bringing forward. And he's also using them in your life to create the type of character that can stand up under the burdens that you're going to have to face. You think waiting, having an Amazon package waiting for you can get you through a hard day. Imagine if the first thing you thought was, Jesus is coming back and how good it's gonna be. Evil's gonna end someday. I'm gonna be with God forever someday. There's just no better news than that and it can motivate us to live differently. The ushers are gonna pass out communion. We're gonna close as we always do by taking communion together. And this is just an incredibly appropriate way to end a series like this. Because we, we typically think, and rightly, that we take communion to remember the death of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And that is absolutely a primary purpose of communion. It's to, to embody our memory of what Jesus did. So we don't just remember it in our heads intellectually, but we actually hold it in our hands and smell it and see it and taste it. So that's like the, the, the aspect of communion wherein we reach back through time and remember what Jesus did and how it continues to affect us today. 
But the other thing that communion allows us to do, and this is clear in the New Testament, is to stretch forward into the future to the day when Jesus will come again. It's like you're eating a meal that will nourish you and strengthen you for the journey ahead. So you go, I don't know how long I've got to wait before he comes back. But the thing that strengthens me, the thing that fills me up is the body and blood of Jesus, is knowing that he gave himself for me 2,000 years ago and that he will sustain me through to the end, however long that is. It might happen tomorrow. It might not happen in your lifetime. But the thing that sustains us is the body of Jesus broken for you, the blood of Jesus poured out for you. So Paul, when he gives his kind of communion formula in 1 Corinthians, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim or preach the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a backwards-looking element to this and a forwards-looking element to this. And so I hope you feel the weight of standing in this one moment where the present, the past, and the future come together and we experience the love of God shown to you on the cross and the promise of God promised for your future. Guys, I know, I know how hard it is to believe sometimes, to believe that he's actually coming back. Like, life has been incredibly hard to many of you. And you go, man, I, I want to believe that. And some days I do. And some days it just seems like, man, it just goes on and on with no hope. This meal is something that goes beyond words and thoughts for you to actually taste and see the goodness of God and believe in, a, in an embodied physical way that his promises will come true. And so I invite you to do that with me now. Let's stand. Father, we who have faith in your son Jesus, we believe and hold fast to the hope that what he began he will finish, that the evil that was vanquished and triumphed over 2,000 years ago will be fully and finally defeated in the future. And as we wait, Lord, and as sometimes the wait is hard and long, as we wait, we take hope and we know that the God who was faithful to us in the past will be faithful to us in the future. Let's take the bread together and the cup, the blood of Christ poured out for the remission of sins and the creation of a new covenant. I want to end our, our sermon today and our series by reading the very last words of the book of Revelation, the very last words of the New Testament. This is how the Bible ends. After every symbol, every vision, every confusing thing that we can talk about and debate about and argue about, when it's all said and done, this is what John says. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Come soon, Lord.